The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to a uh, rainy edition of Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm glad to be here today. I'm here with my usual guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, how are you? Uh, good to be here. Seems like it's been a while since I've seen you, but I think it's three weeks. Been, <laughs> it's been three. Maybe that's what it was. It's been. Seems like it's been a while. We've done the show, and I have certified financial planner, professional David Rudy, uh, and uh, well, you're also a retirement income certified professional. See, so yeah, I was starting to get in my eyes and focus here, David. <laughs> Sorry about that. And financial advisor Ryan Repko. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. And I already mentioned Dr. Fred. You can call in at 356-9397, or you can text us at 351-5357 on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. That's 351-5357. Seems to be really popular. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. We also want to welcome those tuning into Facebook Live. It's important to recognize the past performance is not an indication of future results, and you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence and research. Well, welcome, guys, and uh, I think we have plenty to talk about. Right. Uh, you know, of course, everybody's focused on this North Korea thing. I, I'm not thinking too much about it. I'll, you know, I'll take a wait and see attitude. Right. Didn't seem to have much impact. I kind of, the first thing this morning, thought, wow, maybe that's the kind of a spark that, you know, you see that... The stock market would open up, you know, three or four or five hundred points, but it was pretty much flat when I opened. Surprised yeah. me a little bit. Yeah, it illustrates the uh, uh, danger of market timing. The last four days, I've been wrong twice. I thought that Monday would open really low because of uh, a kind of gratuitous uh, trade war that uh, right. Trump was starting over the weekend and uh, singling out Canada and so on, and nothing happened then. And now we have. Is the, is the nothing happened just because it really is about much of nothing, even though what? obviously. Uh, a, a trade war would be a problem, yeah. but maybe. well, it's, it's come and gone. We have trade wars one day, and then uh, uh, peace the next day, and so on. So I, I think th there's a lack of uh, of uh, certainty that, that these things ever will happen. And the other thing is, they may be to a certain extent discounted, like the North Korean thing sure. probably has already been uh, discounted in. into the market. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I like that one idea he threw out. Why don't we just eliminate all the tariffs <laughs> completely? Nobody bid on that, did they? Right. I'm not even sure uh, yeah. our Congress and Senate would uh, bite on that one, but right. uh, but I out, I would, said to my wife out loud, I go, you know what I would do? I would just say, hey, let's just have zero tariffs, right, and watch everybody squirm. And it's interesting that he did have, he did suggest that, right? And the United States, uh, you, you might not get the uh, the impression of this, but we still have very low tariffs compared to most places around the world, even after all of this, uh, all the things going on in the last. Uh, year or so. And a, a lot of these things are, again, maybe threats as opposed to actual uh, things that will be implemented. So it's, uh, it's still too early to, to see. But again, uh, uh, it's very unusual to single out uh, probably our, our best friend, which is Canada. For <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think that's a classic of Donald Trump thinks he's just kind of a sissy guy. I'm not saying suggesting he is, yeah. but my read on Donald Trump is he doesn't think much of him. And I think he sees him as the sissy boy. Yeah. And I think he had to get his <laughs> a couple right. of pounds of flesh in there. Right. Uh, made for some energy. Entertainment anyway. <laughs> Maybe not everybody's laughing about that. It sure seems, Fred, uh, the economy's getting stronger, and we're probably going to get another. It's it's almost clear we're going to get another rate hike. 
uh, tomorrow of a quarter of a no. percent. And, uh, you know, uh, hope, assuming this trade, war, <laughs> trade yeah. war is averted, it looks like we're going to continue to have these uh, increases. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but job growth is just continues to be just astound everybody. Right. Uh, we picked up 223,000 jobs in May. Econ- economists had estimated about 188,000. Employment benefits also decreased 1,000 to 222,000. So it sure seems that this all the macro data seems to confirm this notion that we have a series of interest rate hikes. They think there'll be a few this year yet, including the one tomorrow and maybe three or four next year, that would get us up to about a three and a half percent federal funds rate. Federal funds rate being the kind of the rate the Fed focuses on, that's basically the interbank lending rate. It seems to be, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be that with, there's also the discount rate, but they seem to focus more on the Fed. And that's sort of a a, a normal situation, even though it has been normal for 10 years, uh, going back a long time. This is not unusual. Uh, The Fed faces a, a kind of dilemma now, which is a good dilemma of, uh, they are in a situation where in normal times uh, it would be automatic to raise rates, but there's almost no uh, problem with inflation right now. So they have to guess about the future, whether it's going to be a problem. So right now, they can, if they wanted to, they could ride the wave and not, not increase very rapidly because there's no imminent uh, inflation pressure. But again, down the road, that uh, that may come back. And I see Ben Bernanke, the past Fed chairman now, he's, he's in the precision game. He says no recession until... 2020. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty on his face that anybody would, and just think how many people probably, you know, pay a lot of attention to that to think about, you know, uh, it's one thing to suggest there's going to be a recession, but now when you start putting out, hey, it's two years away. Well, that's a. Seemingly the game's changed. But he's not a. He's not known for his wild <laughs> behavior either, so it, it well, seems like a pretty, uh, a pretty uh, uh, thing to erect. think about. <laughs> well, and it's just kind of interesting. Um, it's, we seem to have gone from, well, the economy's uh, not strong enough, so we could easily tip into a recession, to, well, now the economy's too strong and the Fed's going to overreact. But as I add up the potential, uh, my view has always been the Federal Reserve, I don't consider the Federal Reserve to be in a tightening mode until... The Fed funds rate, which is well below three and a half percent today, but if we get the three increases this year remaining and four next year that everybody, you know, yeah. believes is going to happen, that would take us to three and a half percent. And we look at the gross domestic product nominally. This is not adjusted for inflation. The last five years has been about three point nine percent. So even with that, you know, you'd have to have a weakening economy down to right. three and a half percent. So even then, we probably wouldn't be tight. So. It, it, it strikes me that everybody talks about this tightening that's going on. It, it's not tightening. It's just sure. normalization of interest rates, isn't it? Yeah, and it gives us another uh, lever to uh, to use because the, the problem, again, uh, it seems like a long time ago now, but uh, what do you do when you have zero interest rates? Uh, what, what if you want to deal with a potential downturn? And right. There, there, you have very little flexibility when you get down to that range, now we back to a situation where we do have some flexibility. Yeah, when you go from five or six or seven percent down to zero or one percent, yeah. that's probably going to have some impact in it. Clearly. But if you're already at zero, then where do you go? Yeah. The other, the problem though is that uh, we don't have similar flexibility in, in regard to the the fiscal side, the taxing and spending. We've already had uh, 
you know, tax cuts uh, that uh, have, have been uh, costly, at least in the short run, and now we have a spending bill that's uh, pretty expansive. So uh, the idea that we could uh, increase uh, spending by a trillion dollars is right. not, not – Out of thin air. Yeah. Yeah, it, and when I th- think of my nominal GDP in the last five years being under 4% uh, so far this year – uh, it's accelerated to almost 5% uh, uh, nominal GDP. Yeah, right, uh, right, I, I'm right. Not, maybe I didn't say no, that. No, you, you said it. Right. Okay. And uh, next year, it looks like it could easily be 6%. So even if the Fed does what it says it's going to do, and we have a 3.5% Fed funds rate and a, a, nor, a, a nominal GDP, which means ignoring inflation, just kind of what's happening before inflation, mm-hmm. of 5 or 6%, it's still not really tight at that point. But you br- bring up an interesting point. Um, the fiscal side is not in order. Uh, we are ramping up the debt pretty pretty handsomely. Is that a potential risk to slow down this economy? It, what I mean by politically speaking, it's going to be hard not to think about raising taxes because right. right. a lot of people are going to be screaming about the deficits. And that sure seems like one thing that really could probably slow, the, slow this train down, and then all of a sudden we do have a tight situation and we have a recession. Right. I, I think that uh, the expansion is not just because of tax cuts and things, but again, of that, course. Would, that would be a, a, a negative. But uh, again, uh, we're in a situation where we we talk about this uh, problem, but the problem is not exactly here right now. The problem of our imbalance on the fiscal side, spending a lot more than we take in and, uh, and expecting that uh, expenditures will rise because of demographics and so on. So we've been talking about that for 15 years, and, and so someone could say, well, why worry? Nothing's happened so far, but eventually it is going to catch up, and the question is when. And again, it's not tomorrow. It's not probably in the next five years, but at some point we have to make changes. We always defer them into the future. Or maybe they're not as big as we think they are in the grand scheme of things. I, I swear, Fred, for, I've been in this for 35 years. I've been doing this show for almost 30 Uh it's the same worries, it, yeah. you know, and you're right. I mean, you know, eventually, you know, anything that can't go on forever yeah. won't. Um, but I think when we get a sense of proportionality about people are screaming about, well, the rising interest rate and the cost of the debt in the U.S. But when you really look at that part of the yeah. of the budget or GDP, it's really not all that important. We really need to, if people really want to worry, they ought to worry about Social Security and Medicare. And well, those are the, the biggest things. And again, right? uh, we're in a situation now where... Uh, at least now or very soon, uh, uh, Social Security and Medi- uh, Medicare is going to be uh, spending more than they take in. Uh, they say, well, they draw on their uh, their reserves. They really don't have any reserves. They're just sort of paper things. So it just means we'll be borrowing more money to uh, do that. Again, a problem eventually, but not uh, not right now. So the solutions are, are there, especially with Social Security in terms of you know, raising retirement age, uh, uh, we've already changed the some some formulas, you know, things of that sort. So again, it's not in- insurmountable, but uh, the longer you put it off, the more uh, difficult it becomes. The bigger the change will be, yeah, as right. opposed to saying, "Look, we're we're heading towards the guardrail. Let's start turning away from the guardrail," right. as opposed to, "Oh, well, we're going to hit it and let the guardrail do its right. thing and, and live with the mm-hmm. results." It sure seems to me that I don't know about m- Medicare because I ha- I I haven't spent too much time thinking about that one but social security i've done a lot of reading about it strikes me that there's a there's a multi-level solutions on that one you know they all involve things that guess what you're going to get a little bit less especially the more you make they could they could add another bend point so that people with higher incomes get less 
replacement of their they could yeah. obviously you could extend the age from 66 67 out to 70 yeah change the uh, inflation the, the, uh, 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 adjustment for which, other things which should be yeah. i mean that that should be changed already i mean mm -hmm. getting this eight percent though you know my clients yeah. are a beneficiary and i hope to be a beneficiary of that uh, by delaying your social security yeah. every year you pick up roughly eight percent on right. a real inflation adjusted basis it's real close to that it's, it depends on when you were born, whether it's yeah, and, 8 and, or and the less. adjustment actually over adjusts too. So the inflation they, it's inflation adjusted at the same time, but but it's over adjusted really because they actually the, the the measure they use actually I think overestimates inflation. So people actually are doing better than inflation when their cost of living. Oh, you mean uh, and their annual cost of yeah, living right. adjustments just as a recipient? Yeah, and they actually changed that in, in the tax bill. Now uh, the income tax uh, brackets are indexed for inflation, and they changed the index there. And maybe a, a, another point would be there. So all these things are uh, are in, in, uh, individually pretty small, but together they could make a difference. And, and they're all incremental. No one's going to uh, go. I guess you don't go to the mailbox anymore, but go to your computer and see sure. your uh, your Social Security payment and find it's cut by ten percent. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to rise as quickly as as uh, might otherwise. So as an aside, and I wasn't even planning on talking about this, but I just want to bring it up briefly because there seems to be floating around this idea in the state of Illinois, so focusing on the state of Illinois, a temporary 20 or 30 year, 1% uh, property yeah. uh, uh, property tax to try to work to deal with these yeah. pension problems. But th uh, that's a lot of money. I right. mean, as a taxpayer, I'm, I'm starting to think, I live in Champ Champaign, right. um, I feel like I'm excessively taxed right. from a property standpoint, people will argue. Uh, maybe it's because I don't have kids in the school system yeah. anymore. I just, you know, maybe yeah. it was great while my kids were yeah. taking advantage of it. So maybe I'm a hypocrite. But I feel, and then we had the mass transit tax in our yeah. neighborhood, which nobody rides the mass transit. I mean, that that's just ridiculous. And then of course the school tax, uh, which is probably going to be a boondoggle. You know, they say it's 180 million. I believe that when I see it, it probably should be 60 million if it should be anything. That's just my opinion. The point is, I'm feeling the tax. Um, and I, now, uh, just about when I'm really getting frustrated with the state of Illinois. Right. Well, I, I don't think you have to worry, <laughs> first of all. Is that about, a political? Uh, it, that's not going to happen politically? It's not even political. It's uh, uh, three economists at Federal Reserve in Chicago uh, came up with some possibilities about how to deal with it, and this was one way of doing it. And uh, everyone, uh, politicians, newspapers, everyone condemned it. It actually... Uh, Make makes some sense uh, at least in a in a kind of uh, abstract way. Uh, the problem with the pension system is we didn't pay when we should have. And the question is, how do you make up for that? Well, you can't go back and tax people's incomes from ten or twenty years ago. Right. You can't tax their right. sales, but you can imperfectly tax one thing that doesn't move, which is sure. property. So that, that that's not totally. Uh, silly, but it's not going to happen either. The other thing is, it, it kind of. Well, what you're saying is, it's not totally silly from the idea that we have this problem, and and, and the, the money has to come from somewhere. And the people who benefited from the problem are people that didn't pay, the taxpayers didn't pay into it right. over the last several decades. How do you recapture that? Well, there's no way to do it perfectly, but. Uh, property is one way to try sure. to deal. And so it's, again, it's not going to happen. Uh, don't no one should worry about it. But the other thing is that uh, it is a kind of into uh, what I call magical thinking. The magical thinking is some, uh, somehow we'll solve this by uh, a little tweak here, a little tweak there. Well, the size of the tax that you're worried about 
represents the size of the problem. So these kind of uh, minor changes that are suggested probably are not uh, going to be enough to deal with. And this, it, this gives you an idea about how, how big the problem is. So it prices the problem in a yeah. sense. It's saying, wow, if we want to begin to fix this, yeah. it's that magnitude. Right. The other thing, though, is that uh, uh, it doesn't have to be fixed at the same time frame. There are lots of, I mean, again, uh, it's sort of like Social Security. If uh, if you didn't have all the political problems, it wouldn't be that hard. But obviously, we live in a political world. So extending the uh, the catch-up period, uh, a modest increase in contribution, things of that sort over a period of time could could deal with it. But again, it's not it's not painless. And if Pritzker wins, it, he's promoting this um, a progressive tax yeah. in the state of Illinois. I'm not going to argue one way or another, but. It would strike me being in the wealth management business. I know I, 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 a number of my clients moved out of state, took yeah. out of state residency on the, just when the taxes yeah. were three and a half to five percent. It makes me wonder what the next wave will be if there'll right. even be a wave. If you start thinking of seven, eight, or nine, I don't even well, know. Nobody's yeah, I, even talking about what it's going to well, be. Well, I, I think that uh, again, uh, it's not. Uh, I, I think people don't have to even. Uh, give the slightest thought to the property tax issue you brought about brought up, but uh, this idea of a, of, of a progressive income tax is also far away. Uh, you don't just walk into Springfield someday and pass it. You first of all have to have a substantial majority in both houses to put it on the ballot. It has to be approved by the taxpayers, the voters, and then it has to be implemented after that. So we're talking about probably three or four years before it could possibly happen. And I suspect it would never even get on the ballot. See, that's why I like to talk to Fred and have him on the show. Because <laughs> I, I know you, Dave and Ryan, you, you guys have seen me. You know, now you're doing it. But, you know, for the first few years, you were absorbing, absor- absorbing uh, kind of how I talk with clients. And the clients always seem to feel so much better when, we're, when I'm done talking with them. And they're like, all these things that they were worried about, you know, keeping them up between one and three in the morning, I, I have the ability to say, well, that's really not the issue. Here's right. here's how this gets solved and all yep. that. And they walk out like they're walking on a cloud. And that's why I yeah. I really have been festering a little yeah. bit yeah, one about both point, of these though, issues. It is a, a potential problem, though, because uh, people probably don't realize that uh, capital gains are treated differently in the state of Illinois. Tra- capital gains are treated like ordinary income. And so... Uh, at the federal level, there's substantial benefits of, of right. having long-term capital gains in terms of taxes, but the state of Illinois doesn't. So if you raise the top rate to uh, 7% or so, you're getting up to uh, a really huge capital gains rate compared to uh, other states. And even compared to the – usually a, a state tax rate is maybe a tenth or right. uh, something of, of the uh, uh, U.S. rate. But in this case, if we went up to 7 or 8%, it would be about half the uh, the U.S. rate. Yeah, and of course for retirees, it's not such a big deal. You know, well, it might be still have an impact, but but they get so much of their income is yeah, already tax, tax free right. or you're tax exempt essentially from uh, the state of Illinois. That, uh, but I can see for the working people that have uh, or some, significant someone, wealth, but someone who's who's not doesn't have a pension, but uh, t- taking money out of a, a capital a taxable, live, a big large living yeah, off yeah. a large you know taxable account. Those are called rich people, Fred. So you know, <laughs> the heck with them. Um, kind of shifting gears here, guys. Uh, today's show from here is going to be a little bit of a variety show. Uh, I'm going to cover a string. We've had a string of uh, articles Rudy Wealth Advisors have been featured in or written themselves. And before we do that, I want to congratulate son Paul. Dave, I'm not really in right. I'm not favoring, favoring Paul. And that's <laughs> because his name's Paul. Uh, 
but he was being, he was just recently named, I think just this week or last week, to Investopedia's list of top 100 most influential vi- uh, advisors in the U.S. for 2018. And just so people know, Investopedia is the world's largest financial education and information website. It creates their invest, Investopedia 100 list annually by analyzing the presence and the impact of financial advisors across social media channels, TV and radio conferences, and their own blogs and websites. And uh, people don't know this, but my son Paul has basically led the expansion of our educational content uh, for the company, Rudy Wealth Management, and which includes our blog, which you can go to at rudywealth.com backslash or forward slash blog. Uh, he kind of basically produces the live radio show for us, uh, the recordings, articles published in prominent uh, financial sites. Uh, uh, just kind of, look, I'm, I could be a true father here. So spoken like a true father, I'm just going to brag a little bit, shamelessly so. Uh, at least I'll consider it bragging. But in the past year, his articles have appeared in CNBC, uh, Yahoo Finance, MSN Money, Investopedia, and NASDAQ. His most recent article about 401k plans we will actually going to talk about today. He has been quoted in U.S. News, The Street, .com, Go Banking Rates, and most recently in Forbes. So back to Investopedia, they reviewed hundreds of financial advisors. They measure the impact across Twitter, LinkedIn, personal and company blogs, and online publishers. So congratulations, son Paul. We call him Paul Jr. around the house. And thanks to all the listeners and supporters of the show, including the crew here at WDWS, like Dr. Ed Bond helps promote us, uh, who provide us with a great platform to get our message out to the people of central Illinois and across the country. So uh, I think Paul's going to share a link on that on our Facebook Live. And of course, you can go to uh, <coughs> RudyWealth.com and see some of the articles. You guys have written your share of them too, but I'm going to focus the next segment uh, on the article that Paul recently wrote for, our, for Investopedia about the five key features of a 401k plan that people need to understand. I talked to Paul a little bit about this, and he was really, when he wrote this, I think it was in the spirit of talking to people his age, people in their late 20s, early 30s, uh, and his observation is, well, they all seem to know they have a 401k, but that's about all they know. They don't know how much they're contributing. They can't tell them how much their employer matches or if they match or how the money's even being invested invested so it's kind of a black box to them guys and uh you know these are big issues obviously they have a huge impact potentially on how and when you can retire so how much you're saving how you're saving it what the company matches how all these things come together and coalesce together uh can really have an important driving part of how the quality of our retirement so the article about five things that a minimum employees need to understand about their employer's 401k plan the first i noticed was employee contributions. Uh, Let's just isolate it to, okay, you're in a 401k plan. You're allowed to contribute part of your salary into that 401k plan. Uh, Why don't you talk a little bit, Ryan, about just how that works and, uh, you know, typically what you see. Uh, For the most part, I think most employers these days have 401k, so I think it's just uh, to back up a moment, it's relevant to talk about because I think this will touch on so many people's uh, finances. But for them to invest in in a 401k, usually it's a percentage of their total salary that they make, or if you're maybe somebody who makes salary plus commissions, it is going to be a combination of that as well. So your total take-home pay. Um, and it's just usually a matter of you selecting how much you want to contribute from your salary into your 401k plan, usually each pay period. Um, and that's kind of 
where people maybe know they have that much. They don't know how much is the appropriate percentage to contribute. How much they're allowed to contribute. How much they're allowed to contribute. The maximum, since we're on that, is uh, $18,500 a year, and that's your own personal contributions. Uh, we'll talk about momentarily your employer will be able to contribute to the plan as well should they choose to. It's not a requirement. And, of course, for older folks like me, they can put more than the eighteen five, mm-hmm. and they can put, what, twenty four. Correct. So there's, a, there's a catch-up for older folks like yourself. Okay, so that's the employee contribution. You're going to voluntarily defer part of your uh, income. Um, probably most people would suggest at your early age as much as you can, 10 to 15%. Certainly wouldn't be out of the uh, question of what degree of reasonableness. I don't find most young people doing that. Uh, the reason I say that is those are your most powerful investment dollars are the mm-hmm. ones you make earliest in life. And I think it's it's obvious to say that when you're first starting out, maybe in your first job even, if we're, if we're really starting from the beginning, 10 to 15% is probably a very large percentage of your, your paycheck. And maybe you can't afford to put that much in yet. But I think the important thing would be to do is to get into a habit of contributing something at a minimum so that you're not used to that money coming in and having to see it go. I think young people on the front end of their career, I don't know how you feel about this, Fred, but let's say you get out of college and you make, or whatever, you, you get out of whatever, and your your first job's 40000 a year. I would treat it as if my first job was 35000 a year or 36000 a year, right off the bat. I'm just going to learn to live as if they said, you can have the job, but it's 36000 and I'm happy to take the job. Mm-hmm. And, and then that four or 5000 is going. You're right. You don't see it happening a lot because, let's face it, a lot of kids walk out of college, for example, with uh, student debt, and they got to have an apartment, and maybe they have to buy a car, and it kind of a lot of these things compete with those savings. Maybe they want to eat, too. And so... <laughs> well, it's a lot of nerve for that. But yeah. Okay, and so that's the the part that the employee voluntarily contributes to the plan defers from their salary and now we have the employer contribution if there is one Mm -hmm. and one thing I'll I'll say too is as you're talking about your own personal contribution you should try to at a minimum if you can't put in 10 to 15 percent like you say you should at least uh, get the match that your employer puts in if they do provide that benefit to you so talk talk me through that one so as a, as a provider of a 401k, they have the option to uh, build the 401k plan in their, in their choosing. Is it to benefit the employee? Is it to benefit the company so they get tax breaks? So there are different ways that it can be set up, but assuming that a company chooses to put money into a 401k. And most do. And most do. Many, most, uh, yeah, by experience, most, yeah. uh, the majority of 401k plans that I see have some form of match. Some mm-hmm. are richer than others, mm-hmm. uh, but it's more typical to have a match than to not have one. Correct. And they have different methods by which they can do that. So some companies will have an automatic contribution into the plan. So they'll they'll put the money in uh, for the benefit of the employee. It's nothing that the employee has to do other than show up and be an employee at, of that company. Okay. Uh, another example, which might be a little more common, is they might match a dollar for dollar or match a certain percentage that you put in so that you as the employee have a little bit of skin in the game, uh, and it's not just uh, a free lunch, so to speak. Uh, but that, I think, is the more common uh, example is as I put in, let's say, 3 5 10 15% of my salary each month, the company will put in a stated amount as well as a match. 
Okay. Um, well, before we go on, I was to remind people, you can call us at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz, Ryan Repko from Rudy Wealth Management, and David Rudy from Rudy Wealth Management. So getting back to that, so we have the employee contribution, the employer contribution, if there is such. Um, and as you said, it's surprising how many people don't put enough away to capture the whole matching free money component. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's any gift anybody can do is just say, pick up the free money. Right. Uh, make sure you're doing that. No matter how painful it is, it should never be viewed as painful for picking up free money. So then the, the amount that the employer contributes, uh, it may or may not be yours 100% from day one. What you put in is yours from the moment you put it in there. You can mm -hmm. take it out. You can, you can leave the company and take it. But that's not true necessarily with the employer contribution. There may be some strings attached, and that's called vesting typically. Why don't you go through that? Exactly. So vesting in its simplest terms is just how long do I have to wait as the employee before the money that my company put in my 401k is actually mine and I can take it with me. So if you throw away the term vesting altogether, that's just what it means. Uh, some companies are more favorable than others. It's not to say that they're an unfavorable company. It's just the way they set up their plan. Uh, but some vesting rules will be 100% vested instantly, meaning if you sign up today, you invest your money in your 401k as you do, and you leave tomorrow, <coughs> the money that the company contributed on your behalf is something you can take with you. Okay. So that's when it's 100% best, and that's obviously the best for the employee. Um, there's other schedules where you could be vested over a series of years. So maybe over a five-year period, 20% vested each year for each of the contributions that your employer contributed on your behalf then becomes accessible to you if you were to leave the company. So the key part is find out about that match and find out uh, before it's too late, mm -hmm. before you start thinking of taking another job. If you work one more month, you get all of it. If you don't work that month, that's not typical. Typical is it's in my experience is most of them vest right away if not over a relatively short period of time but i have seen it's not un it's not you know it's not unheard of to have a five-year vesting mm -hmm. and so you just want to make sure you know what you're and usually that is 20 percent a year right. and so even if you leave in the fourth year you're still going to get 80 percent you know uh, four-fifths of what you put in so or what they put in exactly so again it's not your your personal contributions again we're just talking about the employer side of the contribution and the whole purpose here is they're trying to influence behavior. And so if there is a 20% uh, five-year vesting schedule or maybe uh, a three-year cliff, another term is you have 0% uh, vested until you get that third year, and then it's 100% vested. Yeah. The employer is trying to keep the employees around long enough and use that 401k as a driver to keep people there at the company, maybe hang out a little bit longer than you thought you would, and then hoping that you stay on. You know, I always felt like companies would do their employees a long-term lifetime favor, Fred, if they just said, okay, your raise this year is three or 4%, but you know, two-thirds of it's going into the into your, you know, some type of plan for you deferred for retirement, whether it's, maybe it's a deferred comp plan or something. Yeah. And try to help people. This idea of lifestyle creep seems to be, uh, a big issue with people right you know i guess in your world they call it what marginal propensity to consume is right. that what economists call it but i call I, it bra uh, yeah. lifestyle creep yeah this yeah. is a actually uh, now has the endorsement of a nobel prize winner that is the, uh, richard thaler called it a nudge where instead of 
in the old days, if you had an option, the option was always sort of the lowest one. Uh, uh, if you have a choice, you start out contributing zero unless you choose to contribute more. Uh, uh, he suggested and other people suggest having something like you're talking about, start people at an average level and then increase it slightly, giving people the option to bail out if they want to, but uh, he knows that most people don't uh, do that because right. of inertia. So instead of choosing the uh, the minimal option, choose the what, what he would consider the optimal uh, choice and then have people uh, go from there. And, and his Nobel Prize was more about investor behavior, yeah. right? And, and when we've spent a lot of time, and I was on the front end, kind of a pioneer in this idea that investment performance doesn't matter, it's investor behavior. And it, it's been kind of single-handedly focused in our world, focused on your investments. When we really start thinking where behavior, behavioral right. issues might also need to be addressed is what you're talking yeah. about yeah, people in, in the career, the human capital side. Sure, needs to be and people, people uh, whatever, if you look at most pension plans, most uh, 401k plans, whatever the default is, is what most people end yes. up in, not because it's the best for them, because they just don't take the time and effort to make the changes. Yep. And Dave, that, uh, you've been kind of noisy today, Dave. I was good. You're not getting <laughs> a know, word I'm, in because of me. I'm letting you all talk. <laughs> okay. So I really, uh, one of the things <coughs> kind of leads to what Fred just said is one of the things Paul mentioned is that you can ask a lot of people how their 401k money is being invested by themselves, by the way, they usually get to choose. Most people can't tell you. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to make one note on the last thing, because Companies, actually, it is getting more and more common for them to auto-enroll uh, employees and as participants in their plan at something like a 3% contribution rate, and then they auto-escalate it each year. So basically, they're doing exactly what you described. I would say it's few and far between right now, right. but I think it is getting more and more common. And getting back to not knowing what even your own contribution is, even if you didn't opt into your 401k plan, there is a chance that you're actually... <laughs> making contributions if you're in one of those types of plans. Just something to be aware of, and I think it is a good step in the right direction to help people actually kind of force them to save because, you know, the big problem with all these companies shifting away from defined benefit plans where you kind of didn't have to worry about it because the company was taking care of you towards 401k plans where you're kind of on your own is a lot of people left to their own devices don't handle things very well, so they're trying to figure all that out right now. Because, uh, Fred, I'm sure you'll, uh, I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with me. Yeah. You go to bed one day, you're 30 years old, you wake up the next, you're in your 60s or 70s, and right. you know, and uh, you know, it's hard to explain those things to someone who's 25 or 30 years old. Yeah, I, I, uh, uh, there's a famous saying uh, from uh, Keynes that when he died, about to die, he said, "I wish it." had uh, drunk more champagne. Well, I don't, I don't think most people are going to say, well, I wish I had more Starbucks coffee back when I was <laughs> 20. <laughs> and when I'm uh, 60 years old, don't have enough money to retire on. Yeah, and then everything matters. Yeah. So back to the investment options, I think that is super common because let's face it, there's basically no financial education in our society at and, all. And I much think of it's it a huge they, problem. And much of it that there is is, uh, is misguided. Oh, for sure. Like a lot of the rules of thumb that you hear are just not going to be very useful for most people. They're a rule of thumb because they work on average about 20% of the time, one out of five. <laughs> right. Uh, but because of that, because of the lack of education, I mean, people don't even know the difference between a stock and a bond, let alone, you know, what mutual funds really truly are, uh, what the difference is between a large cap stock or a large cap mutual fund and a small cap one, or especially growth and value, or how much in U.S. versus international, or even how to know what what's in a mutual fund. 
So it becomes this huge problem because people see usually what happens is 401k plans will give you a list of their investment options. And to someone like me, I'm like, oh, okay, this is really helpful. I can look through the investment options, know exactly what I'm looking at and pick a, you know, build a diversified portfolio. Other people see that list and it's just overwhelming. They're like, well, I see all these names of different funds. Some Sometimes the names don't even necessarily tell you much about what, what's under the hood of that fund. Sometimes they do, which is helpful. And then people just kind of do nothing. You know, a lot of times, like Dr. Gertz said, their default is to do whatever the default is. Well, and fortunately, plans are typically, you know, they're going to have some sort of default investment option. It's flawed, but at least it's it's better than nothing. Yeah, but I, I think now most tend to default to a target date fund, which is at least going to get you in the ballpark as opposed to, I think in the past, you know, you'd see sometimes people defaulted into like a stable value fund, which is basically, basically like a CD, but yeah. from an insurance company. Uh, so, they're, so they're making improvements. But like you said, I don't think a target date fund, which basically what a target date fund is something that, that automatically shifts the allocation based on your age, basically how close you are to retirement, the allocation is going to automatically shift, is necessarily the optimal approach. So I don't In fact, it's not, but it's probably better than what most people would pick on their own. Exactly. So if you have absolutely no idea what you're doing and you don't, and you're just not willing to do any sort of like educating of yourself, then that's probably just go with the target date fund. And that's certainly better than sitting on the sidelines. Exactly. Exactly. The worst thing you can do is just kind of do nothing. Everything's compared to what? So, I mean, you know, we we never know what optimal is until we, after we live our lifetime, but certain, we know that certain decisions have consequences. I mean, Fred, it strikes me that we've complicated the retirement business. We've put, just like healthcare, we put it on the backs of employers. So we expect all these employers to be knowledgeable and what ends up happening most of the time is they have a golfing buddy, and so they end up with garbage product. I just saw one the other day, a pretty good-sized company in the in the central Illinois, and they just created this, you know, redid the plan. And I don't know, I don't know what they did yeah. before, but they went from whatever they went to a complete retail garbage plan. Why not? Why why is this not just what it should be? If we look at what the federal uh, program is, the TSP, the Thrift right. Savings Plan. It basically has a series of three or four broad category mutual uh, index funds, stocks, bonds, international, and a, probably a, a small, a, company, a small fund. company fund. Okay, Probably could have stopped at the first couple in a bond fund. Sure. And why not just say anybody who works under the same rules, you could put up to 18000 and if your company wants to match, they can match inside that plan. And it's essentially everything is managed exactly to the thrift savings plan. Well, well what, what, what's so complicated about that? Again, if we were uh, benevolent dictators, that's probably a good <laughs> option. The problem is that uh, uh, people have their own opinions. Like uh, uh, many years ago, I went to visit TIA Cref in New York and was talking to the investment uh, CIO, the chief investment officer, and I said, uh, "Why are you creating all these?" Uh, it used to be uh, TIA Cref had about two or three or four options. And they weren't great, they weren't perfect, but they were pretty good. And now they have probably fifteen or twenty of different course. funds. And I said, why, why bother that? And he said, Well, we don't think it's really good for people, but they want to do it. And if, if we don't have yeah. it, someone else will offer it. So if you want to have a, a aggressive uh, yeah, uh, hyper technology uh, fund, someone someone somewhere thinks they know more and they want to do that. And if you don't don't provide it for them, someone else will. So that's their their 
Uh, That's kind of like a, we have a relative that we were telling him, like, you know, when he asked, why do you guys use index funds? He said, well, you know, Gene Fama, who won a Nobel Prize winner, thinks this is the smart way to go. And he said, well, that's just one person's opinion. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, you know, I understand that. I feel what you're saying is, you know, everybody has different opinions about this stuff. But, you know, for the people who are willing to educate themselves, it's really not too bad of a process to build a really reasonable portfolio. So when you're looking at funds, the things you want to look for is low costs. You want to look for diversified funds. So that means kind of a, a large number of holdings. And I'm talking probably in the multiple hundreds or thousands of whole, of actual stocks underneath a mutual fund. Um, and then you, you want to make sure that you're holding different types of assets. So you're going to own large companies and small companies, basically everything, kind of everything in the globe. Ideally, your 401k plan might have some sort of like total market index or, funds or, or a total world market index. If fund. they don't, you might have to look up your funds and you can do it on online, really information so easily available. Yahoo Finance, Morningstar has a lot of good information for, for mutual free. funds yep. that will have, you know, the expense ratio, the number of holdings, um, kind of anything you'd want to know. It tells you the style. And then you just want to make sure that you're putting together, like I said, a diversified portfolio that hopefully includes everything from you know, you include U.S., international, large, small, value, growth, kind of a little bit of everything. My default is always, that's nice if you can do those things. But I think even trying to do that, uh, when you start on multiple asset classes, people go foggy. My default is always, when somebody says, what should I invest in? I said, do they have a uh, an index fund that either is the S and Standard & Poor's 500 index or a total U.S. market index? If the answer is yes, stop right there. Put all of your contributions in that. Call me back when you're 55, and when I may have different advice. Um, I think any I think any other advice for most people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or even 50s, I think is suboptimal and damaging. I think it's one thing we talk about the problem people not putting enough money away, but then when you compound that with a poor choices in your 401k plan, you may be costing yourself. You don't know it, uh, but you better love your job because you may well be working into your mid to upper 70s. Uh, and when you do retire, you're probably not going to retire the way you want. That's how critical uh, these things are. Yeah, there's also a, a kind of word of warning now for employers. You were talking about the garbage 401ks. Uh, employers now are getting sued for not uh, not carrying out their fiduciary duties and getting uh, funds that are uh, reasonable. Yeah, well, so uh, I had a husband and wife in. His, he had the new plan, and every fund was garbage except they did have a Standard & Poor's 500 index fund. Um, and then I looked to see what it cost him, and it's six-tenths of a percent annually. And I said, well, the difference between your fund and your wife's fund in her plan, there's no difference. It's the exact same fund from the exact same fund family. It's just that yours costs 10 times more than hers costs. Could you imagine two exact cars in a parking lot, and they say, well, how much is this one? Uh, 30000 How much is this one? Uh, 180000 Well, what's the difference? Well, just the price. Uh, okay. Is there, nobody sees something wrong here? And uh, boy, do I get frustrated when I see that. And that was the one thing I was going to say to Dave when he said, you know, what is an important thing to look at is keep costs low. People don't even have a benchmark to know what is high or what is low in the first place. Well, you right. can buy the Vanguard total U.S. stock market index for probably five one hundredths of a percent or so. That's not a recommendation to run out and buy that, just so everybody knows. It's just a, we're talking about benchmarks. What's it cost to own efficiently the total U.S. 
corporate world, whatever it does, I get about five one hundredths of a percent. So, uh, and they're talking about now zero. Well, uh, essentially, uh, well, how long before they start paying us, right? Uh, well, but again, uh, going from uh, five basis points to two is a, a big percentage change, but it makes it, no it, difference. It, it doesn't change. It may, it may change when you retire by a month, but not years. Yeah. Uh, you talk about one that's six tenths or one one full percentage point versus f- five basis points or five one hundredths of a percent. We're talking about the difference in working years are measured by years, not months. So. And I think when we're talking about 401ks, it's really comparing the expense of one fund that's in the 401k to the other funds that are available in that 401k. Of, yeah, because that's you have a good a limited, point. It's not like you can really compare it to going directly to Vanguard and buying an S&P 500 fund because that's not an and, option. And in, in this case, that's exactly so. what I did, David. I said, well, there's only one fund, and it's obvious. It's this total market index fund at 60 base, six-tenths of a percent, unfortunately. But compared to everything else, it's still at least half the cost of all the other whole, all the other fund choices that you have. So that's a good point. Yep. Um, other things that trip people up, uh, you know, then they're going to – they're just when maybe they've educated themselves a little bit, they know how much they're going to put in, they know they understand their match, and they're going to at least contribute enough for the match. Then they say, do you want to do a Roth 401k or do you want to do a traditional? I mean, and and what say you on that topic? Well, first of all, most people don't even know what the difference is. So, so tell them. I think we can start, start there. A traditional 401k contribution means you're basically putting money in there that hasn't been taxed yet. So you're putting pre-tax dollars in. When you withdraw the money, so probably you're going to be retired and you're pulling the money out, it will be taxed at that point as ordinary income. A Roth IRA is kind of the opposite. You're putting after-tax money in it, so that means you're paying taxes now basically on all those dollars and then you're putting it in. Then it grows, and when you withdraw it, the money will be tax-free, assuming it's a qualified withdrawal. And you follow the rules. Right. So, like you said, this sometimes trips people up, but I don't, I think that key takeaways don't stress out about it too much because right. either option is a good option what it really comes down to is what's your marginal tax rate now versus your marginal tax rate in the future when you're going to be withdrawing the money and one it, is known and the other is not known of course exactly and, and i think it's especially difficult for people my age in their late 20s it's like well who knows what's going to even happen to not just my income over that time frame but the the actual just tax, tax impacts over yeah. that time frame so I know you are kind of a fan of sometimes just split the difference. Um, otherwise, I say just take an educated guess. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, there is a little bit of, an, of educated guessing involved. But I will say one, one thing to note is I think people tend to overestimate what their tax rate will be in retirement relative to what it actually is. At least under current rates. Yeah. Retirees in the state of Illinois particularly can retire that I'm talking about the people next door, not not the gazillionaires. Uh, and it may be someone with a million dollars can have an awful lot of income in the state of Illinois and have a very low tax impact. The future tax rates are unknown, of course. My, devo- my default position on that Roth versus traditional is if you're on the front end of your career uh, and you're young and you tend to be in a lower marginal tax bracket of 12 to 25%, I'm probably at, you know, at the 12% uh, marginal tax bracket. It's a no-brainer to me. You're going to do the Roth at the 24 or percent or higher. I'm probably going to one year do the Roth and the next year do the traditional, which most plans allow you to do that. In other words, you hedge your bet if you don't know. But again, whether you do Roth 
or traditional, David, isn't it fair to say, is not a real difference maker of when and how you retire. It, it's kind of, we're trying to self-perfection here. We don't want to make any, you know, we don't want to leave money on the table, but there are so many unknowns that anybody that thinks they can give you, I'd rather be approximately right than precisely wrong. That's I guess that's the way I would come on it. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to phrase it. It has an impact, impact, but it's not tremendous. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, again, I think that that was a, a worthy article that Paul wrote for Investopedia. You can go to our website and find it. It's uh, probably a little more geared towards younger folks, but it still does. But I still default into my position. Yeah. One, one additional thing. Uh, not everything applies, but uh, many of the things we talked about applies to 403Bs, which we will have a great point at uh, uh, nonprofit uh, yeah. government places and 457 plan and they, usually so, don't, they usually don't have a, a employer contribution but aside from that they're right they're similar so uh that, that would hold that's a good point uh and finally dave uh, you were in uh quoted in the u.s news article recently about don't make the mistakes in a don't make these mistakes in a volatile market you actually mentioned a couple of different mistakes people make during the market fluctuation phase two of the six that were discussed what were those well the first one was checking your account balance too often because you're just going to be disappointed if you're in the middle of but a i have market. an iphone 10 it, that's the X, thing is it's, it's so called. easy now to check your account balance day to day and it, you know if the market it really isn't a bear market you're going to see day after day your market your uh, a portfolio balance declining that's going to just stress you out and make you more prone to mistakes a lot of our clients have told me that you know when they go into a big bear market they only open their statements you know maybe once a quarter or every six months or once a year it just makes things a little bit easier psychologically. Um, the other thing I mentioned was more of like a mental mistake or error. It's the thought that people often have, which is, I'm going to get out now, and I'm going to wait until things get better. And that sounds very like a common. totally reasonable thing to do. I mean, it just seems like. And then you say, okay, well, what define better. Like, what are things going to be like when they're better? Well, the economy's improved, whatever the specific issue is. The is crisis resolved. of the day, the apocalypse du jour is kind of cleared up. And, okay, well, where do you think the market will be at that time? It's going to be higher than it is now because things will have already been cleared up. So what you're doing is deliberately creating a plan to sell out now while things are scary. And because things are scary, the market's down, reflecting that information. And then buying back when things are a little bit better, according to you, which by definition means the market's going to be higher to reflect the fact that things are better. So you're purposely creating a strategy to buy low, or sorry, sell low, and then buy back high. And and then you're probably going to repeat until... Until broke, just, yeah. until you go into uh, basically a, a lifetime of destitution and sadness. So I think the main thing is just be aware that although that seems like a reasonable strategy and it's very human to think that way, it is a terrible, terrible investment strategy. One exercise that would probably help every investor is to go to the month of the year they were born and find out where the Standard & Poor's 500 index was trading at that time. Look at the dividend income at that time and now compare it to where it is today. And I once wrote a newsletter and I'm probably gonna recycle it, but write new content and the headline was hysterical versus historical. It's always easy for advisors to say, well, if you look at the historical returns, you know, this too shall pass and all that, which are things we say that this too shall pass. But clients have to live through those statistics, right? They have to actually live in real time world. And that's where it really becomes difficult. Uh, and, and I think that 
is the challenge ultimately. And it always comes down to the psychological component of this, which is where we've honed in over years. I've been honing in on this behavioral aspect, but it's a lot easier said than done. But it's interesting what people will do when left alone is they will actually, because losses in a, take a broad uh, U.S. market index fund. Uh, and people can say that they'll have losses. And I'll say, well, how do you lose money in something that goes up the way it has over your lifetime? And it takes human intervention. And it's when the, the, histo- the hysterical overcomes the historical, which it will always do. Uh, all the historical data in the world won't calm somebody down. Yeah. So I never even try to, to march out charts and to prove things when clients are under stress. Sometimes it's as simple as a conversation of, look, I know everybody and everything around you is telling you to sell why you can, why you can get out with your skin before it's too late. Everything around you is telling you to do that. I'm going to suggest that this too shall pass and that you not do that. And Mr. and Mrs. Client, I promise you, uh, this, this day will come when we'll have this conversation and I'm going to tell you not to do that. And eventually you're gonna to have to trust somebody. And sometimes you just have to look at your advisor and say, Paul, why, why, why should I take your advice? Sometimes it comes down to because I say so. Sometimes it literally is because I'm telling you not to do it because I think it'll be the biggest financial mistake in your life. And if people don't think I have said that more than once in a 35 career, yeah. uh, year career with seven bear markets, which are declines of 20% or more in broad markets, th- this is really when we always circle back, guys, we always circle back to the psychological phenomena and the behavioral issues that people struggle with. Yeah. Uh, to emphasize your point, I think almost every uh, mutual fund, whether it's uh, uh, indexed or whatever, the average investor doesn't uh, do as well as the fund because they come in and, and leave it to inappropriate times. Right. We see this over and over. You can look at it in the client data flows, the dollar data flows in and outside of mutual funds. It appears to be getting better in some areas, but as much as it's improved, it hasn't improved much when it comes to the broad asset classes. Uh, you know, there's still pretty wide gaps. This behavior gap is what Fred's talking about. It's the difference between what investors' returns are from their mutual funds and the actual returns of the mutual funds. We automatically assume that, well, there I got that same return. If the fund earned 10% a year, I earned 10% a year. Well, no, you own the fund. You just happen to bail out at the wrong time and get back in and by then it was too late. You keep doing this to eternal sadness. And this is the most common thing probably that I've seen in 35 years. It's just that the right side of our brain, the behavioral side, overrides the left side, which is our logical side. Well, guys, we're uh, wrapping the show up. We're about out of time. We appreciate everybody listening. And congratulations again to Paul Jr. for making Investopedia's list of the top 100 most influential advisors in America. Fred, thanks for coming. Ryan, thanks for coming. And David, you think thank you too even I, I want to brag about you a little <laughs> bit but i just can't thanks for listening join us for the second and fourth tuesday of each month for paul rudy's on the money views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station this is news talk 1400 wd ws champaign urbana